Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. Thanks very much, Hugh. So, um, yes, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm joining actually from California. So for me, this is an afternoon chat. So coffee in hand, not um, Negronis. Um, but yes, yeah, so this, I guess, is the third of the, the, the washing series. Um, of course, like those art washing implies, uh, you know, that it's it, there's kind of an ulterior, ulterior motive present. It's art with an ulterior motive. Um, maybe that's to kind of cover up uh, or distract from some shitty architecture or some very bad um, uh, city building or, or poorly conceived placemaking. Uh, or perhaps it's also uh, tokenistic uh, um, as, as many of the other forms of washing are, uh, whether they took some kind of box, um, whether that's uh, uh, kind of an exploitation of the artist and their profile, their gender, their skin color, et cetera. Um, but of course, uh, I think the interesting dynamic is that a lot of uh, a lot of public art is is entirely admirable, um, even when it's uh, kind of at the behest of the natural villain in the story of art washing, which is uh, which is the developer. Um, that's the person you kind of might might turn to, um, the developer who who kind of seems to have studied the the kind of Richard Florida version of, of urban progress. Uh, where gentrification is kind of relabeled as growth um, and where artists are kind of seen as a, as a kind of pivotal moment uh, in, the, in, in the development of a neighborhood or a city that kind of helps to transform it from, from a kind of undesirable poor place um, to a place that is, is more suitable for the, the kind of wealthier middle classes um, to move in. Um, so that's, that's kind of part of this, I guess, heritage of, of art washing. Um, versus, uh, you know, or how uh, art has been perceived by by developers and and uh, its function in cities and how that's been kind of commodified into what maybe we call art washing. Of course, that's my that's my personal opinion. That's totally up for debate, and uh, I'm curious to to hear kind of like how other people define that term. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know the 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 uh, first kind of line of questioning that we'll get into after the, the um, panelists uh, have a chance to introduce themselves is that line maybe between kind of good public art and bad public art, as in, uh, you know, has, ha has art been embraced um, as a, uh, by the developer or has it been kind of weaponized? Um, and uh, is art with an ulterior motive um, better than no art at all? Uh, 
And I think now is a perfect time to kind of be talking about this because we've all been stuck inside, unable to kind of enjoy city life to its fullest um, for a year. So it's a good time to kind of reflect on maybe what we're, what we're returning to and what we want to see in our cities. Um, but I will uh, turn it over now for some introductions um, from each of our panelists, which I will do in, in, uh, in the order in which they kind of joined um, this Zoom, um, because I have no other way of um, ranking them. So we'll start with Tony, if you want to introduce yourself briefly. Thanks, David. Um, so evening, everyone. I'm, I'm kind of in awe of the, the kind of creative panelists you've got this evening. And um, as the kind of representative of a developer, I'm going to try my best to uh, get rid of the villain image in in some of this this debate, but um, I, I guess I'd introduce myself as a kind of fairly simple person, but with a complex uh, relationship to to art washing. Um, not least in that I'm addicted to street art myself. My my Instagram's ninety percent street art, nine uh, percent cake, and one percent disappointment Aston Villa results. Um, so you know, I kind of live and breathe it, and I live in East London. I'm surrounded by um, some great street arts and great creative communities, but I'm also surrounded by some of the worst examples uh, of art washing uh, I think I've ever I've ever seen. Um, and for you know, I've I've worked for a number of famous creatives, for for actors, for designers, um, all sorts of people who've got that kind of brilliant bit of edge, that fire that's kind of rooted in in social justice. Uh, and you know, I grew up in a council estate, um, working class, but uh, less so now in uh, the kind of things they can can do and access in life. I own my own apartment in East London. Uh, for those that Google me, you'll find that three years ago I sold a Banksy in Wales, um, a quite controversial uh, issue. Um, so I have have numerous kind of connections to to that kind of topic. But I guess I'm I'm here tonight to represent uh, the kind of regeneration developer Evan Splash who. Um, I'm a consultant too, so I've got quite some freedom tonight to say what I want. And at the same time, the co-founders of Urban Splash are, are comfortable with me joining this because they've got a fantastic track record of truly investing in kind of artists and viewing them as the, the kind of vanguard um, in regeneration. So I'm really looking forward to that debate. Great, thank you. Um, next in was, uh, was Fiona, I believe. So if you want to introduce yourself, Fiona. Okay, great. Hi, so my name's Fiona Grady. I describe myself as a site responsive artist. So essentially, I work across a variety of different venues and I work with architectural relationships. So I tend to kind of seek opportunities to find ways of devising art for those spaces. I normally work with bright, vibrant colors and geometric abstract shapes. As an example, I do quite a lot of work using transparent coloured vinyl, which I'll put onto windows in a manner that looks a bit like stained glass. So the work when it's hit by light will um, elevate the space. It's kind of interesting because for me, when we're talking about kind of art um, washing and a way of kind of like disguising things, my work actually kind of draws attention to the site instead. So um, it can sometimes encourage people to look up or around or take more notice of their surroundings. And it's, it's quite interesting to sort of be drawn into this sort of involving this conversation about art washing because essentially I work quite a lot with both public and private commissions where people will 
fund my work so that I can create new installations and it's always this thing of being conscious when you're approaching a commission of trying to find ways that you can elevate and improve the quality of the area that you're making the work in um, so it's kind of moving away from rather than just being decoration and a way for people to consider their surroundings and really appreciate the venues in which the art is set in. So I think it's kind of really good to have these conversations where we're talking about the ethos of the art project and why we do it, rather than just simply saying, you know, it's a commission opportunity. And I'm sure throughout the conversation, we'll get onto that in more detail. Great. Um, Shane? You. Hi everyone, um, I'm Shaya Delican and I'm an architectural designer and artist as well. I um, currently work for Assemble Collective um, and who are a collective basically that straddle the kind of fields of art design and architecture. And also, yeah, I do my own freelance artwork. I also do public art installations. Uh, in the last two years, I've created a installation called Plastic Pavilion that um, was looking at uh, using public art as a way to platform kind of issues that I think are really prevalent at the moment in society to do with uh, recycling and circular economy, uh, which basically was a pavilion that um, is consisted of like 1,600 plastic balls that I collected across in my local community and hung to create a canopy of hanging um kind of stained glass kind of mural effect with loads of colored water in it um so yeah i see public art as a way of um addressing um uh, public um prevalent issues in society to a wider um uh, public sphere um and making it accessible but i also am an architectural designer so also a very aware of like how public art and you know architecture kind of coincide together a lot of the times and I very am a forefront in promoting more community-led and co-designed architectural spaces so this um, talk is really like I'm really excited to be part of this talk because I think it's about thinking about who benefits from these situations and I think that's the key issue um, when it comes to art washing so yeah excited to have this discussion cool and will finally yeah, I totally agree with um, Sayi. Um, it's about, for me, less about maybe the artistic object and about the process and who it benefits from what work it's doing. Um, I've realised I've just jumped into the subject and not introduced who I am, which is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, I'm Will and I'm London-based. I write and I make visual art um, to a slightly less extent. Um, and I used to work in architecture as well, so I kind of have an interest in all the three areas. Um, that maybe will come up tonight, which is criticality or critique of place, making things to go in a place and making the place itself. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm on the fence about it. Like I'm hyper aware, I studied a research master's in architecture and neoliberal politics and things like art washing and gentrification um, do crop up a lot in that kind of discourse about the changing face of the modern city, who shapes it, who benefits from it and who is maybe dispossessed from it. Um, so I'm kind of aware of all the aspects of it, and I'm also aware as an artist, um, even to a low level, you're kind of complicit in that to some extent. Um, so I'm interested in where we all find the boundary of what art washing is. Um, and you know, do, is it an artist studio? Is it putting the things in the street as an installation? Or is it all kind of art, or does it have to be developed? So I'm kind of interested in all of these aspects and seeing where it goes. Um, I did for a few, years some of you might know me from and I don't really want to talk about it a lot all the time but there was that thing called the garden bridge that didn't get built and one of the things I had against it was it was kind of a big art spectacle project it wasn't for me much about architectural transport 
a lot of people, but it was about, I think it was closer to art washing than any other kind of uh, architecture or transport infrastructure thing that it was kind of pretending to be about. And I think there's something in that I have an issue with art washing, which is about the spectacle, the waste of public finance when it could be spent on actual infrastructure, actual people and actual creativity. Okay, there's already a lot of interesting things um, to talk about. Of course, um, as kind of Hugh mentioned, this is a very participatory um, type of uh, type of event. So um, you can either put um, questions into the into the chat, and we'll we'll raise them. Or I think you can unmute yourself. If not, you can kind of raise your hand and and. And Bobby or Rebel, well, I mean, Bobby's nodding. Yes, you can unmute yourself and just like jump in. So um, at any point from now, <laughs> basically. Um, but a question which I'll throw uh, through to our panelists just to get kicked off is, um, I guess that question about you know, there are always kind of a, a lot of. Um, opinions about about public art you know taking taking those kind of high profile examples such as the garden bridge or, or Heatherwick's other kind of a major work which was built the vessel to to kind of like much smaller more intimate um, low budget projects um, some people love them some people hate them you know it becomes kind of a, a bit of a question of taste in a lot of circumstances um, but but I'm wondering you know if if uh, if the motives behind all of those things, how much that's a factor, you know, in, in whether or not we should kind of judge these things, um, you know, kind of uh, negatively, um, you know, is, is, art is it only art washing essentially if it's, if it's bad art or bad, uh, <laughs> bad architecture or whatever, um, it, you know, is, is art washing, I suppose, in the eye of the beholder? Maybe I'll pick up on that quick to get it started, only because I mentioned that bridge and you just mentioned it, and not to talk about that, but I disliked it as an art object, and I disliked it fundamentally for its kind of procurement and uh, and what it stood for. But I don't know, I don't quite agree with um, your premise in a way, because I'm, A, I'm not sure about if it's possible to have bad art, because for me, art isn't necessarily about the aesthetic beauty of an object, but about a way of thinking or a process and the fact that somebody somewhere has been creative, which I think is always to be kind of celebrated. Um, and there's examples of art washing, which um, I would say for me, maybe tip over the side of problematic or touch on issues which I found problematic, but I, I can think can be interestingly aesthetic objects. So if we look at, um, um, there's a big trend at the moment for big colorful geometric mules. You know, I know some of the people that do them, they're friends and there's like, I think Leighton has the, Kamala Walala sculpture um, paintings. And I think they can be beautiful objects. They can enliven a street and they can be aesthetically really interesting and striking and stimulating. But I also see how that, when it comes from a singular artist who's brought into a place not involving a community with an aesthetic which has no rootedness in the place or cultural history in the place, can often be art washing too. But still I, 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 
to, to chip in I think it's quite interesting actually sort of like what you say about um I think sort of uh, whether it's done with cynicism is quite an important point and I, um, where it can be done responsibly is maybe when these people who are approaching certain commissions perhaps have an art consultant who actually helps to decide what happens with the work and it's complicated with public com consultation because sometimes when you have um too much input from the public then it can actually take away from the work and you can end up with something quite generic so it's quite interesting sort of looking at different ways of initiating these initial responses and perhaps public consultation is quite important in the idea of developing the artwork and then maybe the experts or people from you know curators will come in and actually sort of maybe guide the work in a positive direction yeah, but I think also that if you bring in an artist into an area, for example, and it and they continue creating the same kind of murals in different spaces, it becomes quite homogenizing. And the fact that you're bringing in another artist that's not from the local area is basically implying that there isn't artists in that area and that you're not willing to invest in local talent. Um, and for an artist to choose to do work there, like obviously it's like your choice completely, but it's also thinking about why are you, do you think you have the um, the the right to have your voice in that space more than someone else? I think to do with art washing is the fact that it's about where the value of the investment goes to. So obviously, for me, I see investment when it comes to art washing is that you know developers use artists to increase the value of property or the space to to create gentrification. Now you know capital is usually going to come from quite corporate space and fair enough but I think if it's going to who does it benefit is where it kind of draws a line so like if you're involving more local artists or artists who actually want to actually have a local like a community engagement in that space then some of that value and some of that benefit can actually go to the people who live in that area and I think it's kind of the idea that you know it has to be like outsourced and that kind of outsourcing is where the problem is and the lack of engagement and the sensitivity to the environment that you're creating art within. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree with what um, Sayu's just said there. I mean, you know, uh, if for any of you that have got those kind of uh, really rubbish Andy Warhol posters on your board that, you know, one of his things that said art is what you can get away with, mm. I, th I think that's a mantra that quite a lot of developers <laughs> Um, can I take to heart as well, you know, what what level of art and what way of art washing can they get away with that both satisfies um, a desire of local community, but also satisfies their need for shareholder profit. So, um, so interestingly for me, the kind of the kind of language just used there by, by say, you know, the panelists of you know, community consultations and so on, I think say his point of you know, I, I'm working with one community, for example, in, in Birmingham right now, where it's not community consultation. Um, it's it's getting out of the way so that the artists that are already there can go and do the things they want to do in the community we're building in. It's it's letting them have access to the resources, to the spaces, um, to the boardrooms, the, the cash, the conversations that let them do what they do best on their own terms in a community that was theirs before we came along. Um, and I think quite often developers don't have that sort of approach to it. It feels quite risky to some of them. It doesn't tie up with the profit narrative, but it's but it's never, in my experience, it's never just the developer. I mean, I live minutes away from Hackney Wick um, and the approach the council is taking towards development 
isn't helping creatives to stay in the area unless you've got quite a lot of money and can move into one of the expensive artist studios rather than use the external space. Um, so I think there are multiple kind of parts of that developer journey where there are a number of people that just uh, are focusing on the end, end motive of how can you bring great art to a community but quite often the reason they've picked that community to develop in the first place is because it already was filled with great art, great artists, great creatives. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, just to understand, like, do you, do you believe, I think this is maybe mostly to kind of like Will's point and Shay's point, um, like, can, can we judge a, a kind of like piece of public art um, separate from the from the place uh, in which we find it, or do or do the two need to be connected? And in what ways is it kind of acceptable that they you know that they're connected or disconnected? Because I think, of course, you know it's 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 like really wonderful to use um, local artists, but at the same time, you know I'd be very happy for artists from you know some communities to to find work elsewhere you know it, it, the, the kind of like territory of an artist to work shouldn't just be obviously their own community so th that's the kind of flip side obviously we want artists to be able to work kind of internationally like throughout London for example um, in what ways is it you know to what degree does it does it does kind of public art need to be connected to place for it to kind of uh, not be art washing if, if I think I think to that point um, and maybe it touches a bit on what, what Tony was just saying, um, that it's kind of what kind of art is acceptable as well. I think Tony said the word risky, which is quite a nice word, because so often the art you find in public space, in art washing, in corporate developer, local party led is kind of the same kind of art often. Um, it might be what I was just talking about. And, and also I want to add that whatever we say in this conversation, I'm not really interested in attacking any individual artists or approach to making art or anything like that it's it's more about as say was touching on like what work is it doing and who is it benefiting and where's that value going um rather than anyone's particular practice or way of working which you know all art i think is is valuable but risky so it's what kind of art and, and maybe tony could answer to i mean maybe i'm flash on the best i know they're not the most evil developer and some developers go into artist studios or, or street art and things but in a bit, much more cynical way. Um, but it doesn't include all kinds of art. It often includes a very safe, corporate friendly, apolitical um, kind of art from voices, maybe not the voices that need to be heard at any one time, which might include the local community or any other um, class or, or, or racial minorities. But it's people that maybe already have access to those networks as well. And I don't know how we can bring risk back into art making, which inherently kind of it is, because it is a medium which should pose questions or often does, it can have lots of uses. And the and when the funding always comes from the top, whether that's often art council or developer led, can it be risky? And can it actually ask questions? That's what I'm wondering as well. And and to David, your question, can you separate art from this? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see, you know, you go to any development now in, in in America, Britain, probably Australia and else, and you'll see a Conrad Shawcross, an Anish Kapoor, an Anthony Gormley modeling himself, you know, so you can pick up them and put them in front of any building and they can say it's site specific and it never is. Um, 
some artwork is site specific and i'm kind of more interested in that because site for me is the people and the context as well as just the positioning of it but does that have a fun does that have a role in, in kind of art washing for you um yeah certainly um well the idea you can just pick up a piece of art and drop it somewhere else i mean i'm interested in that like you could look back and say well we used to do the same with henry moore sculptures and i was trying to work out what's the difference between henry moore like just up the road for me in a in um in in a housing estate just up the road for me at kennington is that different having a henry moore to having a conrad shawcross in front of you know the crick building or something um but yeah i'm trying to work out what that answer is but yeah i think it is because one doesn't have the cynicism perhaps that the other does but it's a gray boundary mm -hmm. a lot of it comes down to taste as well doesn't it because I think you can do something that can really um, be beneficial to a space and really uh, change the environment and make it a really uplifting place to be. But if you then always have to connect it directly to the place that it's cited, then sometimes it can become more illustrative rather than actually kind of interesting and forward looking. And I guess that is the sort of thing with, you know, both with the two artists that you cited as examples, that both of them, their work is kind of maybe more of a spectacle. Yeah, but like whenever you put um, art in a in the public realm, you're having you you already start a dialogue between that you know piece of work and the context is within. So even if it is like something that can go anywhere technically or is not site specific, it's you're creating a dialogue, and that dialogue could create some interesting conversations. It can create some problematic conversations with where it's set. And I think going back to David's uh, point of when is it okay to like. Um, exhibit art from you know about people you know exhibiting in different areas of course it every, people should exhibit in different spaces um but i think it's about the intent because usually the people who commission artists have an intention for what why they're commissioning art in that space and if it's due with placemaking then you're trying to improve the place that you're you're putting the art in and what does improving mean to the body of people who are commissioning the artwork and what does it like is it improving it in an aesthetic manner which is increasing uh, bringing a new demographic demographic in is it improving the life of the people already there what is improving mean what is bad and good art is a subjective term but like there is very clear objectives and intentions of people who are trying to commission artwork and i think that's what it comes down to and then yeah artists then get used maybe on without knowingly to promote an idea that actually is actually quite dangerous and um, disfranchises a lot of people in that area. Um, I don't think it's a problem to like, you know, yeah, put art in different places. I think you have to just be like, be responsible in thinking what is the intent and why do I want to put art there? What is my um, reason for having an art piece there? And if I am gonna put an art piece somewhere, Am I, do I want to engage with the context? And the context is people, it's the environment, it's every, it's everything. So I think there is like a sensibility to do so as an artist. I think you um, touched on a nice word, um, which um, which is a word I hate, that is everywhere in this sort of discourse, which is placemaking. Yeah. Because it implies that there was not a place there before. And there yeah. was always a place there before. It's just yeah. it wasn't a place that those people wanted to be there. It wasn't desirable to a, a type of people. And that's, yeah. you know, it was desirable to someone. Obviously, like, you know, 
when gentrification happens, usually, you know, there's stuff like crime and stuff, maybe it might change or something, but it was still a desirable place to people and there's desirable aspects in a space. And I think going back to um, Tony's point about the um, creating space for artists who already exist in a space to create art is important. Um, a friend of mine who uh, was living in, in a estate in Elephant Castle fought very hard when his uh, family's uh, house um, and shop, no shop was going to get um, uh, demolished for a new development and uh, managed to get a new retail spot in the new development and now has his own art space and continues like creating art for communities that he really cares for in the space that he grew up. Now, I think that is a good example of art being created for community with people who already existed there. And I think that's really important about investing in communities. That's what it's about, isn't it? What placemaking should be about. So that's when I say local, that's when I think local is really relevant, but I don't think it's that it should only be local. I just think it needs to be relevant to a space and a context. Yeah, I, I think your point about, you know, placing artwork in a community creates a dialogue. Quite often with developers, you, you very quickly work out what dialogue they want to have. So, you know, stick an expensive statue and then stick a sign on it saying that kids can't climb on it. Um, you know, you, you're, you're instantly kind of telling that community how much you trust them, how much you really value them over the, the artwork you put in. Um, and I think, you know, the, my experience of uh, the kind of the work I've done with Urban Splash is that it starts with community. You know, I always try and whenever I look at which art project, which artists are we going to kind of support, the question we always ask ourselves is who's going to love this? Like, is, is it just for our own ego? Or is this genuinely something that the people that live there, whether it's in our new new uh, homes built by uh, House Bear and Splash, or whether it's the existing community around it, who's going to end up loving it? And if we can't genuinely give an answer that starts with the word community, the existing community, then it's probably the wrong thing for us to be putting our, our money into. Um, and I think uh, the work that Maya have been doing with Yard, their, their kind of art house in in Portleaf is a great example of where us taking a step back and giving them the space to do it their way um, hasn't prevented us from bringing artists from outside Birmingham to that community. But the artists that are from that community have made the decision about who those people should be, about what value they can bring to that community. So, um, so they're going to have some incredible um, uh, artists from the uh, um, uh, Resolve Collective in London um, coming to live in the art house in, in Portleaf and bring that extra dimension to the work that the community has already been part of shaping, but, but it starts and ends with community. I wanted to just kind of like pluck a question from the chat and also remind people to like feel free again to like unmute yourselves, um, which, which is David Bickle who says, uh, who kind of asks whether um, the panel has an opinion about, about the way in which artist studios are displaced through regeneration, which I'll then kind of paraphrase as saying like, if, if, you know, if, if these kind of regeneration projects like use public art as a way of kind of indicating that art has value, but at the same time are kind of displacing those, not doing anything um, to, to kind of support those artists who may, may be in that community already. Um, is that you know for me that that kind of becomes quite problematic um and i'm and maybe that's the you know one other dimension of, of art washing in which uh it's kind of 
I guess, what, what's that kind of like hypocritical in that sense to, to kind of like outwardly express that you value art, but not actually do anything to, to support artists? Well, that's a great example. Yeah, really bad art washing, really, because what happens is that developers have meanwhile spaces, which basically means that whilst they're waiting for development, they bring in artists to occupy spaces and bring the cultural value to a space. And obviously every artist has a choice to like, you know, a lot of artists are struggling and need, you know, affordable space and they'll take that space. And they, a lot of people do amazing like projects in meanwhile spaces. Um, for example, Grow Tottenham is a meanwhile space, which is, is a very, very like, great, amazing community-led uh, community garden that's been going on for ages. And they've managed to secure one of their longest leases um, ever of like, I think two years, which is, you know, well done to um, the um, group there. But the thing is that I think a lot of artists maybe now are realizing is that even though they may benefit for the short term, the long term is that they will get displaced. They won't be the first people to be displaced um, because in the hierarchy of the people who are quite um, on a low income, um, it's not the artists who usually get the place first, but eventually they will do. So I think when it comes to art washing, it's about thinking you can make an individual choice to, you know, to make most of an opportunity that's given to you. But I think it's also about if you, if you care about affordable um, spaces for creative, um, you know, practice, shouldn't you be also fighting for also these kind of like you know, building kind of coalitions with other people trying to create affordable spaces and trying to bring more community investment, community-led um, owned spaces that will continue to be affordable and provide and continue providing in the long term. Because the problem is that it's always short term and there's no like legacy in any of these spaces or continued investment for people. And if you're constantly being displaced and moving, which a lot of artists are, um, it eventually you kind of burn out it's quite exhausting and you're creative and you can make do with any space you can but artists are a very niche you know group of people a lot of people can't do that and it's about supporting each other to in order to like create community like great communities you think you think about community and neighborhoods is the people you remember next door who you can always call to you remember the person you know there's like this ongoing strength of like working together constantly so yeah I think there's there is a big problem with just like bringing people in and going because it's idea that it's kind of you're dispendable <laughs> in a sense basically yeah definitely I, I'm sort of a, is totally in agreement with that and I'm an artist who I've moved studios every two or three years since I've had a studio and it's sort of this this irony of you know I, I moved to London to be an artist and I've stayed in London because that's where the opportunities have been for me but at the same time, you like um, say says we're very sort of vulnerable at the same time. And what's kind of interesting is I work with I have a studio with Tannery Arts, and we work with the Drawing Room Gallery, who have a space in Elephant and Castle. And we've been working very much with the local council to try and provide as much value to the community while we're in that site. And the Drawing Room, in particular, is like an excellent example of a gallery where they run lots of education workshops. They've been doing after school clubs for the local community, and during COVID, they've also been sending packs out to the students so that they continue having an engagement with um, art and I think that actually it's a much more valuable investment to create spaces where artists and galleries can engage with the community on the long term rather than you know funneling lots of money into one big commission that people can then see but is only there for a visual impact rather than an actual long-term engagement. I think as well to speak to say so you were saying that 
um, answer to the question that, I, um, that David read out. Yes, artists can be displaced because their studios are, uh, as mentioned, meanwhile, they're just sitting there until the value has been built up enough or the parcel has been made big enough for the developer to drop their flats onto. Um, but also it's worth, I think, remembering that art doesn't exist in a vacuum. Artists do not exist in a vacuum. They have likely displaced other people in the process um, of getting those apartment, those um, studios. If you look at Old Kent Road, um, there has been quite a balanced ecosystem around there for many years, um, which has involved small artist studios. In the last few years, as it's been built up ready for sort of development and, and primed for demolition and redevelopment, a lot of more artists have been moved in. And a lot of things like dirty, quote unquote, um, industries, car breakers, mechanics, um, you know, fishmongers, things that cities need to function near the centre and across all parts of community and uh, society have been displaced and displaced just as they were in the Olympic Park for another kind of sports washing spectacle, which also used art a lot. And it's great for the artists that they might get this meanwhile space for two, five, six years. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that they are like often living in the ghosts of other communities and it's much better for those artists to exist and understand that ecosystem, um, I think. I also think it's a mistake to um, let let developers and others off the hook here in you know thinking that art always needs to be in those slightly run down um spaces you know one of the things that urban splash is, is well known for is actually a, 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 a quite a significant number of art studios particularly across uh their kind of main home across the north and northwest um and they're incredible spaces but they're not hugely expensive and they don't need to be. And I think, you know, one of the challenges I see on my doorstep here, particularly in, in Hackney Wick, is that the transition that's happening there because of the pace of development is to displace the people who are at the, you know, the, the lower, the least resource end of that spectrum. And they're convincing people that they're not displacing them because they're bringing other things that those artists can use. But you know, they're really expensive studio spaces for high-end art. It's not for the things that was the area was known about. And, 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 and you know, before I forget about it, uh, I think anyone that wants to, to kind of know more and engage more in what's happening in Hackney Week, um, I would suggest uh, following the Hackney Week creatives um, on Instagram who are right now trying to, you know, they're, they're, all, they're petitioning the council to protect a space that will still be theirs which makes me feel really sad that, um, you know, that area wasn't somewhere where artists asked for permission to do what they're doing. They're now at the point where they're, they're really, really asking for permission to protect the last remaining bit of what, what the area was is known for and why people wanted to move there in, in the first place. But I think let's not let, you know, coming from a developer where uh, we would consider art to be part of our community from day one, um, and art is being fundamental to a, a thriving community. Let, let's not let developers off in in thinking that it always needs to be those crappy, rundown yeah. warehouses. It's it's not. So, so those warehouses, you know, um, firstly, some of the companies running them make a lot of money because they're taking money from both developers and also the artists. So there's kind of you know some some there's some money floating around there, and it's not always going down to the creatives, and it's not going to the community. Um, but also they're not, you know, there is that myth of the artist in the garret or the industrial relic, you know, the Derek Jarman sort of 
burnt out warehouse making these beautiful pieces of work. Not all artists work like that. If you're a musician, you need a space where you can make a lot of noise with your mates. You know, um, you don't need a space where you can just hang up an easel. And are we building those kinds of spaces? If you're a choreographer or a dancer, you need a space where you've got room to stretch. Are we building those kinds of spaces? So art isn't just about us lucky individual artists that can make something in a room and hopefully show someone. And also those studios are not public facing often. They're in, you know, they're not always near where people live and they're often very expensive. And there is that myth of living in the sort of the, the ruin lust of, sort of the 1980s New York or London and the warehouse sort of scene, which yeah, is, is kind of a myth and not useful for a lot of creativity. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's some people in the chat, um, Alona and Armin, who both kind of mentioned Balfron Tower as, as a, a, a kind of a worst of the worst example of a kind of artist being used to, to displace. Um, and I was just wondering if either of them were up for kind of talking a bit of, about that or, 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 you know, I think it's an, it's an interesting dynamic because, um, of course, I think, um, you know, it's like, it, what, what responsibility, you know, where does the responsibility for that lie? Should artists also be held accountable, um, for example? Um, well, I think it's a real challenge. I mean, you know, I, I don't live that far from Balfour Tower and uh, there are bigger issues with Balfour Tower and, and the story of where it's got to than the art washing that's gone on. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a real shame, um, the, the things that have been lost in its regeneration, um, not least in the community that was was thriving and was there before it was regenerated. Um, but the art washing there is a really interesting example of where I think you've got those bodies that are not quite developers, they're not quite government authorities, they're in that halfway house. And they quite often are the ones that really get it wrong. They're the ones that are supposedly closer to people in their communities, um, better understand them, um, but seem to spend less time actually understanding what they want, what they care about, what art they want, you know, why which people in their community could actually be doing the art in the first place. Um, so a lot of the art washing, which I've, I've seen there, walk past it fairly often, it feels like art washing to me because it's not from the community. Um, you know, they're fantastic murals, they're fantastic pieces of art, but it, you know, it goes back to the kind of point say, you know, others were making earlier of, if you do want to bring somebody in who's not Arvel from that community, be prepared for people to really feel that you are literally art washing and ignoring the, the kind of voices and lived experiences in that, in that community, which it's a shame because it's great art, but wrong approach. They didn't ask the question of who's going to love this, who's it for, what's the purpose? Yeah, I, to speak on that point, um, and it's a, a place I've been thinking about a lot in preparation for this event, um, and then say again mentioned it earlier, and I mentioned it with the Henry Moore is um, Elephant and Castle, which is up the road for me, and the Haygate Estate in particular. And I and I have these kind of there's been so many art projects which have happened around there, largely led by Art Angel, who I think sometimes get it right and sometimes really get it wrong. Um, there was one that didn't happen was the Mike Nelson, who I think is a fantastic artist, but had this really problematic project in 2013 at the moment of demolishing the Haygate, where units would have been kind of ripped out of the building and stacked into a pyramid. It would have been spectacular. It would have been a phenomenal kind of art object, architecture thing. But how problematic to use houses that people have been literally, who've owned their houses and have literally been torn out of their hands and dispossessed with not enough money to buy a new house anywhere within 
view of the M25 to then turn that into an art object or spectacle. Roger Heelms was a similar one. I think it was a beautiful experience to go into his seizure, the blue crystal uh, social housing shell, um, which has now been airlifted, I think, up to Yorkshire. But again, deeply problematic because there's someone lived in that. That was someone's lived experience. And now it's sort of being turned into this photo op. And I took photos there. It was beautiful. And there's been others. There's the Andy Holden and Marcus Coates. And somewhere along there, everyone will have different views of what's art washing and what isn't. But I think some of them more blatantly are. But in all of them, there are communities there where it is not the community that's talking, but they're being spoken about or used for other tools. Um, but way back in the chat, Herb made an interesting point about about kind of murals and propaganda, and I, I'm going to ask him to repeat that for the benefit of everyone. Oh, hi. Yeah. Well, th there were really two points, which was, <clears throat> first of all, about uh, the community. And, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Belfast, and, and some people re will remember that at the end of streets, you know, Republicans or uh, nationalists would paint these big, very highly political pictures. And, and, and this was part of, um, uh, you know, this extreme polarization of, of Northern Ireland. And that was actually the community. Um, so the community itself, when you think about it, probably the most art you see, public art, in the world is community art because it's graffiti and it's, you know, tags and, and it's all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think we've kind of grown to appreciate it um, and it's, it's recognized as an art form. But when it started, you know, when they were tagging trains, you know, in the early days of hip hop culture in New York City and everything, it was sort of like threatening. So I think that's an interesting aspect of the community question when the community itself does the art rather than artists brought in. But with the corporate, so very quickly, I'll move on to, to, to my corporate side of the question. Um, you know, is corporately uh, commissioned art delivering propaganda, you know, developers or I, I think sometimes about um, sculpture in the city, which is in the city of London once a year, and the city corporation commissioned loads of artists to put really nice works out there. Um, and it's sort of presenting an image of the city, which is very pleasant, but it's also saying, hey, you know, we're, we're more than uh, capitalists up in skyscrapers, you know, trading fossil fuels and buying Bitcoin um uh, we're human beings as well and like is this a spectacle is it propaganda yeah, yeah. yeah there's a couple of points i'd make i guess in response to that i mean one i think you've taken us on one part of that back to david's original question of you know is art in the eye of the beholder and i think you know you find me a developer that won't come in and remove a tag off one of their, their properties or hoarding within seconds, but they'll happily leave a beautiful mural or other type of graffiti up. Um, and and uh, particularly in the last kind of year, uh, I can point to numerous developers who've really struggled to decide whether or not they should remove the slightly provocative po uh, political art that goes up. That's really given them, um, given them headaches recently. Um, but I also think, you know, you're, you're Kind of description about you know people and and the kind of capital involved and so on. It just takes us back to the things that say you know as I was saying earlier of you know where's the purpose what behind this what's the intent 
Um, I, you know, there, there is a very large multinational developer that's building most of the community that I live in. And uh, during COVID, during the relaxation of some of the rules in summer last year, we had the London Mural Festival kind of pretty much take over the entire community. Um, and we're now surrounded by incredible uh, murals, uh, many of which for some reason simply say the name Tony and I still haven't worked out why. Um, it's a bit weird walking past my name every time I go to the shop. Um, but the murals are incredible, but they're on the, the kind of boards of the site that is protecting pieces of land that that multinational developer with global equity shareholders they have no idea where Stratford is. Um, they might have heard of Olympic Park, but they have no idea where, where, where this is, the community that was here before this place arrived. And yet for the next three, four years, their development site is, is covered in beautiful hoardings, including a relatively well-known uh, street artist uh, in London, whose art now adorns the entrance to their big corporate offices here. And that for me is really, I found it really problematic. It, it felt like art washing, but it also in the context of the year we've just had where those artists have not been able to go out and do their work, have not been able to go and do um, the kind of provocative pieces and so on. Um, the festival created paid opportunities for them to work. Mm -hmm. um, and so it created that real kind of conflict to me of what is, is it art washing or is this simply helping the artists that I love seeing elsewhere survive in the year we've, we've just had? Yeah, that, that's um, um, and a good segue to, to a point that Sean made in the chat, which I'm, gonna, yeah. which I'm going to get him to repeat for us. Thanks, David, and hello, everybody. Um, nice to take part in this um, interesting discussion and see some faces I... Um, I, I exchange with on Twitter who I've never met. So hi, Will. Nice, nice to properly meet you. <laughs> I think we've met in a gallery once, but yeah. <laughs> um, now I just wanted to make the point. There's, I mean, maybe it's a condition of being uh, in 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 the idea that art is a new religion. Artists are the new Catholics, and they're full of guilt. <laughs> they're guilty about art washing, and they're guilty about displace being being agents of gentrification and um, displacing people and I, I just wanted to point out that you know being an artist is uh, you know has a profound value in its own right it's a really difficult life to lead you know it's not somebody uh, it doesn't mean you do you know unless you're very fortunate and become extremely successful but those people of course are you know, uh, very thin on the ground. You know, for most artists, it's a, it's a vocation. It's something that you're doing and you're bringing value to the world uh, for yourself because you're getting some fulfillment out of what you're doing, which I think is a political act in its own right, not, not to, um, you know, uh, to sort of refuse to take part in some of the oppressive, ways in which a lot of people are forced to live. I think it's a hugely brave thing to say, I'm, I'm going to be an artist and, and take that what comes with that. And of course, it also has a massive value, wider value to society as a whole. One, of course, which is recognised by developers, which is why they want to monetize it uh, in the first place. 
And um, so artists are just trying, like everybody else, to find their own way, to find the gaps you can actually operate in, in an increasingly, um, uh, you know, oppressive and claustrophobic world where everything is dominated by money. And I don't think they should beat themselves up for that. Um, and I think they should, the, the, the issue about artists displacing people shouldn't be framed that way because the enemy is common. It's artists and communities are not enemies. The enemy is a, a, a common system which is causing the displacement of everybody. Yeah. Unless you're fortunate enough to have some kind of financial foothold. And so um, less guilt. Oh, can I just, I'll quickly come back on that, if that's okay. Just to very quickly say, because I think I think it was mainly at the point I was saying about uh, old Kenmo and stuff. And my point wasn't maybe that artists feel guilty, although I, you know, I kind of do have guilt for everything I do as part of my my, my being. But um, more to the fact, we should just be aware. We should just be critically aware of the ecosystems that we exist, not to blame yourself, but to be aware. Um, and like you say, it is the neoliberal state, and especially of this government we have at the moment, to make the precarious fight against the precarious whether that's from class or employment background or ethnic group or whatever. So you don't fall into that trap of fighting against each other. I completely agree, but you have to be aware of one another. Yeah, and I, 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 if I just say very quickly, I agree with that, Will, but remember also, as you, as you are yourself an example of, um, you know, artists are amongst the most critically aware people around always. I'd like to say that not all artists are critically aware though. And I think that, um, yeah, I think Will makes a good point that you should be aware. And I think Gil also serves a purpose in acting and being activist and actually making a change. And I think, you know, you can be guilty and feel sad about yourself and be like, oh, well, I have no place, I feel helpless and I can't do anything about it. Oh, well, or you can mobilize and you can do, and you can actually be a vehicle that actually makes change. Um, I should have mentioned that I also, just talking about, um, someone mentioned our angel a couple of times. I did work for them for the past two years until recently. Um, and yeah, some of their projects, yeah, wasn't around for the, um, the wasn't around for the one in Elephant Castle. So I yeah, don't really know that much about that one. But I do want to say just because the graffiti keeps coming up again, that um, I when I was working for them, our angel, I was working predominantly for the year three project with Steve McQueen. And that project is a good example of one like a commercial corporate like space in the urban environment being used for art and it brought my attention to the kind of paradox of how like graffiti is an art form that is criminalized yet um an art project which in itself i think is amazing and a great you know project of citizenships citizenship and a way of you know children's voices and faces being seen in the public sphere where they feel like they have ownership over their like environment but I think there is a point of, about what is okay and what's acceptable art and the fact that some art is still being criminalized, especially graffiti art, where, you know, someone just posted in the chat, you know, having hoarding that was not curated, where people could just put work on there would be an amazing piece. And you're seeing that as, you know, that the pandemic has happened, you're starting seeing some um, uh, billboards being used, I think, Yinka, um, Ilori was put, been putting some artwork um, that has been popping around everywhere, which has been great to see, but it'd be great to also see some space just to create by the, the public who have something to say, who have like words to express and like visual um, 
imagery to show. And um, I think also the point that it's not, we're talking about a lot to do with visual artists here and, you know, visual artists aren't the only artists and, you know, artists, I think the word artist is used quite loosely now to mean people who are just have a creative practice where they're engaging in some form of creative practice. Um, and I think, you know, I um, sometimes I've been put on this as an artist um, at Assemble and I'm currently a artist in residence um, for an art Assemble project in Smithfield, which is one of the first places to be gentrified in London. Um, but I am not a visual artist in that's in this role. I'm actually we're actually trying to uh, create a project which is about exactly what people have mentioned, you know, a space or social project based in a house on Prince Street that is um, creating a social platform and centre for people who are fighting against housing rights and land reform. And that's a very prevalent uh, place to be in, considering how gentrified that space has been. And I think artists have can be can embody different roles and spaces and that they can create and they can really engage in the community in different forms. And I think we should maybe not focus so um, so strongly on visual artists and think about the other ways that, you know, people can engage with local communities, each other. And um, it's about bringing new, if artists do come into an area, it's about creating new relationships and strong ones. So if, you know, let people come, let people mix, let people create art in different spaces, but let's start meaningful relationships with each other. I think that would be great. <laughs> So <laughs> I had a sort of a question to pose to everyone else on the panel, actually, which was that one of the things we've been talking about is about kind of artists doing stuff in their actual communities. And I, I wonder how we all think would, what sort of solutions we can offer to give people opportunities in the communities to actually make their own work there, too, because I know kind of. For myself, I found most of the commissioning opportunities have been really in London. And that's part of the reason why myself being someone from the North has ended up staying in London rather than going back to where I grew up. So it's this sort of funny thing of being an artist that you know lives and works in London. My studio is in Elephant and Castle. So I feel part of the community there, but I'm a newer version of that community. But you know, how do we activate other, you know, support and encourage other people to do things around the country where they really feel like they are taking ownership too? Um, on that, on that point, I guess uh, it's difficult. I mean, I think it's a lot of the problem is structural rather than just, and it's maybe not even the responsibility of individual artists. As Sean was talking about, you know, there's a lot of weight put onto what art has to do these days. It has to deliver social good. It has to deliver health, mental health. It has to deliver place. It has to deliver all these things. And actually, can we not just make art sometimes? If you want to do any socially engaged art, that's great. But sometimes people just want to make nice art. And I think that's fine. Um, but also, I think it's structural. Like, maybe we don't build things like a new music centre, which isn't now happening, around the Barbican. But maybe £100 million pounds will be given to schools across the country to buy violins and harpsichords and whatever else they want to play so kids growing up can learn music instead of building a big thing like that. Maybe we don't have a thing, something like a festival of Brexit, which I think is grotesque and is kind of an art washing on a political level in the same way that Azerbaijan uses art washing on a big propaganda, say, level. And we put that money into actual local communities up and down the country. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be about making a thing. It can be about just giving people funds and space to make things, whatever those things are, kids, adults, pensioners, whatever. Um, something I'm helping with at the moment is the starting of a, like a non-profit which uses empty high street spaces called Hyper Studios. But it's very meanwhile, it's very temporary. So up and down the country, we've got them in 
Eastbourne, Horsham coming up, and there'll be some in the north of England all over. People can use the empty Woolworths or the empty, you know, um, bookmakers on high streets um, to make art, whether they're a pensioner that wants to paint landscapes or whether they're someone, a recent graduate that can't afford a studio. Um, and that's good in a way, because it means not everyone has to come to London. It's not all about London. I love London, but as Fiona speaks about, like, like it's not the be all and end all, and actually some really good and important art and those connections happen elsewhere. But yeah, maybe it's just not the role of the artist, it's the role of structure and state. <laughs> um, I wanted to bring in Sumita also, who, who is making some interesting points, just, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, a kind of virtue sing signaling uh, of developers. Um, Sumita, if you wanted to kind of like uh, voice that, um, that perspective. Thanks very much, David. Yeah, the point I was trying to make is that um, artists often struggle to actually make themselves heard. And um, I use artists in my charitable work. I always try to include them, whether it's even something like a community kitchen garden or, you know, a, a sort of a, a community, any kind of community project. I've tried to bring artists in. But I find it quite cynical in the way that developers sometimes, with apologies to Tony who's sitting there, um, you know, use artists to bring some sort of notion that they're being culturally sensitive. Um, so I see this around what, uh, Old Street a lot of the time where the holdings have been left there for graffiti artists to, to work on, to say, yeah, we're kind of there and, uh, we're helping these people. We are uh, giving credibility to these graffiti artists. I've actually worked with one of them, um, and I find it isn't so. The, the artists on the, are not the people that benefit. It's the developers for the developers' advantage that you know the the these things they there's these holdings they've given to the people to work on to the artists to work on. So I just find the whole thing quite cynical. Mm. I think, I think you're right to be cynical. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I, and I can say that comfortably as someone that um, kind of advises Urban Splash and helps them develop some of those relationships. I, my advice always to, to kind of our team is um, let's start from the point of cynical um, because, you know, we should be challenging ourselves on, on some of those points. I think the challenge for me is where, um, you know, what again going back to that that point made really early on what's the real purpose of this because it's it shouldn't be about you know i know what you mean by the stuff that happens in in old street it shouldn't be um kind of wrapping and and marketing to make it look nice whilst they spend 10 years working out how to build on the land they've just bought it it should be genuinely engaging like i think of the relationship we have with kid acne in sheffield um, you know, he is a loved and treasured local artist, um, but I get just as many people in Sheffield complaining to me about um, what we're doing with him and the, the work he's done on that estate as I do the people that tell me how much they love it and want to engage with it. Um, so it's, it's a real, real challenge to get some of that right, but I think you should continue to be cynical of any developer and we should continue to start from that point of being cynical about ourselves. I see a comment um, in the chat by uh, George Emma um, about, um, and I found that really interesting, about um, a lot of art architecture commissions recently specifying they want an Instagram backdrop. 
Uh, I mean, I've written about that in Dazine actually about whether whether we whether we should be designing uninstagrammable spaces um, to try and make people actually connect with place and people in a different way. I know a bit provocative it's kind of impossible especially because the more ugly you make something the kind of more attractive it is or the more of a challenge it is to those who want to capture it within that awful square i think that's interesting because it speaks a bit to that that short-term nature of what architecture developer certainly often is and place has become um the average length of time looked at a piece of art now in like tame modern i think is between eight and twelve seconds um so we're very quick visual culture um, and how does that affect place? How does that affect the kind of art or conversations we have in place as well like that? Um, I think Instagram won't be around forever. That other things will replace it. But yeah, I, I hate Instagram backdrops, Georgium. <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite like the idea of Instagram backdrops makes a space quite like, it's kind of a bit of like a fetish, fetish of like just getting attracted to something for the way it looks, but not anything else. And that thing is kind of reminds me of, you know, when you see like loads of, you know, people in a, like a monumental place when they're traveling, taking pictures or something, and they're just overwhelmed by this like image that they want to capture. And they do quite horrific. I don't know if anyone's seen like Instagrams in the wild or whatever of, um, you know, people doing quite insane, horrible things to like sometimes their kids or like people like very dangerous things just to get that image. And they just don't, the, the thing is, it's not the, the problem isn't the fact that, you know, there's a beautiful sculpture or piece of art or architecture there. It's the fact that they just don't engage in anything else. And it's quite obsessive and it's quite um, addictive and like unhealthy. Um, I think there's aesthetic plays a really important part in beauty, like beauty attracted to things because of the way they look. Um, but it isn't the only thing. It's the same reason why, you know, you don't just go for someone because of their looks, you know, there's also like a deeper core as well. So I think, you know, you can bring the, you know, use the aesthetic to bring people in, but then what's happening once they're there and how, do, what are they doing in that space? I think never, we didn't realize that people are using Instagram backdrops as a commissioning tool, but that's really, yeah, not surprised actually, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it sort of maybe slightly overlooks some of the talent of the artist as well to find ways of transforming spaces. And yes, you can make an artwork that is an Instagram backdrop, but it might also do a lot more at the same time. So I think if you see a commission with that in the description, then it's not a reason not to do it. It's just a challenge to do something that's actually really great and that means something to you. And I think kind of like with everything when we're talking about hoardings and I think someone else wrote in the chat about whether the hoardings should be clear and just have nothing there at all but every hoarding that is put up there's some kind of design decision that takes place and a lot of stations and building sites have hoardings with just a generic digitally printed design so maybe there are some positives for a developer actually commissioning somebody to act, an artist to make that like it is developing an opportunity even if it's not the one that we want it to be. I think hoardings are more often than not around sites which are being demolished and then rebuilt rather than things which are being improved. And I think we need to just stop demolishing things. I mean, we have a climate breakdown. We shouldn't be demolishing things anyway. But the very act of demolishing then rebuilding means that you are dispossessing a community of whatever kind and building in a new one. Um, so maybe hoardings are just like uh, a bad thing in themselves. And so I think someone mentioned earlier in the chat, we shouldn't be place making, but like place extending, I think they said. Um, which maybe speaks to that kind of accreting onto community or place or building or city rather than kind of 
this idea that you know we'll keep building it and one day we'll finish it because it'll never be finished. Mm. There were there were a couple of points made David in the the chat that I wanted to pick up on. I think some I can't remember who, but somebody earlier on said, you know, if you ask the community what do they want, um, will they pick the art over their need for a kind of leisure center or whatever other community facility? Um, and then David Bickler can see just asked the question of um, we talk about art. Uh, art or culture as if it's a novelty or nice thing to have that it's a privilege but it's a fundamental human need I, th I think David's point is um is spot on for you know thriving communities have a mix of all of these things and um I don't think I would ever work for a developer who gives an answer to the community that you can have the art or you can have the community facility this shouldn't be an and or it should be a an actual response to to what communities really need but i think it talks to a, a kind of wider kind of problem of um you know who who are those people having those conversations so you know i know no developer here asked me my opinion and what i want and um, beyond whether do i want a concierge to work nine to five or do i want them in the evening no one's asked me about the quality or the accessibility of a GP or a swimming pool or or local art creative stuff um, and I think you know for me that's part of the problem whose responsibility is it to actually go and listen talk engage with that that community to understand what they want what they need and try and create some of that kind of space and, and catalyst for the artists as well as everything else those developers should be delivering I wanted to accuse you, Tony, of art washing. I think you should get yourself some proper shelves, some proper books, a proper dog, and a proper chair. Yeah, I'm so. Um, this is a lovely graphic from from Evan Splash, and and I'll own up. The real reason for it is that uh, my apartment is filled with various bits of uh, purchased graffiti art uh, from various artists that I love. Um, and I wasn't quite sure which ones to put behind me. So most of the ones I have here are actually um, by a, a kind of artist called Notes to Stranger, um, who councils hate him. You'll you'll find his kind of posters with a, a random saying on it that you spot it at the corner of your eye and it just makes you feel something. Um, and I've got quite a few random ones from him, some of which aren't clean enough for, for, for the screen, even at 8.30. So um but yeah so apologies for the slightly branded background david i was um um i know we're getting towards the end i was just wondering if maybe there was time to touch on very briefly as a group conversation or yourself to talk about different kinds of art washing because it isn't as simple as just us as artists or architects or developers kind of using art in a local context but you know, if you look at the fantastic work that Liberate Tate and Platform are doing to try and decarbon uh, sponsor things like Tate Modern, uh, that's art washing. If you look at, um, there's an excellent article I can post in the chat that was um, in Hyperallergic last week about Azerbaijan and how they use art washing, you know, and the Zaha Hadid Art Centre there, um, and huge amounts of money which could be spent on people in Azerbaijan to kind of... Uh, really cover up some quite disgusting political um, behaviours and acts. And that comes right through to May Mayfair art galleries and kind of money laundering on the big art market level. There's, um, you know, the things we've talked about, there's also lots of local authority led art washing 
Um, and sports washing, I think, as I mentioned with the Olympics, it kind of crosses over into art a lot. It's all become part of the spectacle. And then, you know, the political art washing as well, which is um, the Brexit Festival. So it isn't just about flats and developers and, you know, working class areas of London, but I wonder if there's room to just briefly extend into the other areas. I know it's like another 10 hours if we were to do it properly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we'll go for like another ten or twelve minutes. But I think I think that's really interesting. It's like certainly there's a there's a strong relationship with brand, and you know even in in the case of developers, like now they think of of, of new developments as kind of brands, and they need to have a brand identity, and art kind of infiltrates that. Um, and certainly in the case of uh, uh, the Olympics, that's another that, that's a that's a very good example. And, are, and do you mean that the kind of flip side of, of art watching is also kind of the use of art as, as activism? Um, well, no, I mean, the art washing, it means no single thing. Sorry, my screen just changed. Um, it means yeah. no single thing, but, but um, it's a very broad term, but it can mean just the sponsorship of, you know, big, often evil companies to use art as a foil. You know, I think um, Tony mentioned or someone mentioned earlier about sculptures in the city, um, you know, they can spend £20,000 putting a few sculptures in the square mile, fine. They can afford it because they're putting money into offshore bank accounts and shell companies all around the world, you know? So a, a sculpture at the bottom, great, it's nice. I walked past them all the other week, it's lovely. But like, I care more about, you know, one third of the world's money being held in bank accounts that no one has access to and is not working for anyone while people are starving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, and I, there seems to be a, a kind of movement against that in the past, whatever, five, five years or so, um, that I think is really interesting. Um, and a lot of artists themselves kind of uh, having, you know, being put into a position where they, they, they have to react to that. Um, you know, the institutions themselves are not interested in, in kind of getting ahead of any kind of controversy for the most part, which I think mm. is interesting. I think I think that's true to an extent, but I think I think everybody listening in tonight needs to keep an eye on it. I mean, I you know many of us have been around long enough to know that an awful lot of people in these spaces um, are reactionary and will do what they need to do to avoid the the controversy for a period of time. And I can't remember who it was. Somebody in the chat earlier talked about you know look at lots of developers have leaned into, for example, at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. Last year, you saw lots of communities start to engage uh, black creatives to do incredible projects in communities. And uh, there was a lot of uh, removal of sculptures and things in those communities, but they've shifted them to Canary Wharf and, and other places. Um, they've just moved it to other areas of gentrification. They've not, you know, it's not got rid of it. It's not a long-term uh, commitment to, to kind of community art form, creative form. So, I'd be slightly cynical as to how, you know, is, is it a genuine shift um, from the, the kind of development world to, to behave like that and genuinely listen and be a catalyst for this stuff? Um, or whether it's still a bit of a, a marketing ploy and a fear of saying or doing the wrong thing. Um. Yes, I totally agree. I, f I feel like people are, are kind of like, you know, 
Now it's uh, it's only 2 p.m. where I am, but it's it's kind of <laughs> getting a bit late in in the UK. So I think one, I wonder if people are kind of losing a bit of of energy and they've they've um, inebriated themselves sufficiently. Um, I wonder if there's like if there there are some kind of final thoughts if if um, just to allow some time for the panelists and anyone else to to kind of uh, offer some reflections on the conversation or, or what. Um, uh, kind of stood out to them. Can I make a point, David? Absolutely, um, yeah. It was um, just the point about, you know, art expressing something from the community and um, then that becoming something else entirely. So when I went to see the murals in Belfast, um, you know, they were actually an expression of genuine anguish amongst the community and things that the community wanted to paint. Uh, some of them are very crude or it doesn't matter, you know, what they were, but they were the expression of the people. And now they wanted to preserve those murals. So they've, uh, and also they didn't want to show guns and all sorts of things. So they've actually sanitized the whole of the artwork. So either they've been replaced with some plastic a replica which doesn't um, you know wash out in the rain or something or the guns and everything else has been replaced so the whole history that the art wanted to depict has been sanitized and changed and it's not it's not what it was meant to be and that's a kind of I don't know whether it's a political art washing or just art washing I just was so disappointed, so I just wanted to say that. I think I think you make an interesting point about um, it being sanitised. Uh, I know um, a few I have a few colleagues who work in Belfast, and one in particular who quite often, if we come over, will kind of give us the the kind of tour of the murals. Um, and whilst there's definitely some sanitising going on in some parts of it, I actually think this is more reflective of. Uh, the community's narrative is forever changing. Um, you know, murals, street art, quite often they're, um, particularly the provocative ones, they're of a moment, they're of an event, they're of a, the time they're trying to make a point. Um, uh, and Northern Ireland's story in particular, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get uh, involved in the, the kind of politics and the, the religion side of it, but it's, it, you know, their story is changing, forever changing. And it doesn't surprise me that the murals themselves change. And I think particularly of some that I actually saw in a kind of Derry, London Derry, where they have removed a lot of the kind of quite violent, scary aspects of them, but the community has replaced them with other things. You know, they might have taken the guns out, but they've they've put things in those murals now that represent where they're at. So, and I think, you know, that's, I mean, that's just part of it. I mean, I've lost track of how many times people um, getting into an argument about, uh, you know, a, a fantastic mural or a piece of graffiti that then someone comes and paints over the next day with another piece. I'm like, it's street art, it's graffiti. There is, there's no rule that says someone puts something up and it's it's got to stay there forever. I mean, this is the the misnomer about Banksy and all of his work. You know, it, if so, I think for for Northern Ireland, I think it's a slightly different context and that that it is an evolving narrative and it's theirs importantly. Um, but I think on the more wider agenda, let someone else change it. You know, I was quite happy when someone, uh, another graffiti artist, come and painted 
the uh, the reindeer's nose red on the Birmingham bank too because it, it just looked better. So there was, there was a lot of headlines last week. Um, I think the most recent. Oh, I'm bored of Banksy. But the most recent Banksy was the one outside Reading Jail of like, I think someone climbing out a window or something. And then I think a week later, someone came along and tagged over it. And then there was this uproar about how the, about someone had the gall and the gumption to come and ruin a, a Banksy when they're both doing the same thing. It's just that one's acceptable and one isn't. It's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of interesting, the idea about attributing value, isn't it? And I think essentially, with all of these things that is really sort of moving forward, we want to be able to sort of have a way that art can, you know, I mean, sort of art can be part of the environment and it be a positive thing. So it's really sort of de developing these narratives and dialogues about how art, art washing or at least gentrification could be done more, more positively to have more of a sort of ethos of actually involving the opinions and ideas and what the community wants in those places but also I think one of the things that's kind of come out of this conversation is recognizing that a lot of artists are part of the community too and we're, we're talking quite a lot about the bigger names and more high profile artists but these commissions happen on all levels and I know certainly for myself that you know the Arts Council is probably the only funding body that the government properly supports artists with and that those grants are quite small and they're not sustaining people's careers so I don't think it, we should be too judgmental of artists for taking commissions but hope that those commissions actually present opportunities for artists to create quality work at the same time where they're properly paid for what they do. Yeah I think there's a like a balance between preserving culture or and culture transforming and changing and also you know yeah having a space for change and I think the thing about gentrification isn't there isn't there isn't a problem with change it's about rapid change and about you know change that doesn't you know engage in you know existing spaces and I think we're all for I think we're all struggling and dealing with the same structure that is very oppressive and is displacing everyone and finding it hard to find affordable housings workspaces um employment you know funding um, and it's about, you know, trying to create space where everyone can have an opportunity to, you know, be creative if they're artists, or if they're not artists, also be, just be in their space. <laughs> and I think that's the, like, the, the nature of um, uh, artists are trying to, just trying to create and be a positive, imp like, usually trying to be a positive impact in whatever they do. And, and usually, it's like a, a space of joy, usually, I hope. Um, but I think what we're realizing is that they're being used not to spread joy actually and actually cause a lot of pain in other people's lives so I think if we can try and like be aware of that situation then we can continue artists can continue creating and also benefit themselves and others in the process. I think on that point and I'll just um this is my final point I think we're going around doing final comments um i i haven't read the whole book yet but i've read a couple of essays from it and i recommend it i think it's a free pdf online but there's a new book out called aesthetics of gentrification edited by christoph linder and uh, gerard sandoval and there's an essay in that which i read um, a couple of days ago about la and gentrification in la by jonathan jay and christman and we forget maybe we we are you know architecture in this country is very london focused um, a lot of us presenters are here from london and it predominantly happens in big cities, this kind of art washing thing, but we should remember that our communities are not just local, but um, they straddle the globe in a digital world. And we can have solidarity with people in 
similar struggles all over the place. And LA is a place where lots of this is happening. There's been a lot of noise about oil heights in LA and art washing there, where a lot of big galleries have come in and sort of set up white wall spaces and kicked out a lot of, I think, the Latin community that lived there. And there's a nice essay, which I recommend people digging out and reading. I can put the link in the chat. Um, where it specifically talks about two neighbouring areas of LA, Boyle Heights and Little Tokyo. And in one area, um, there's a huge artist and local community activism against the galleries and the art washing. And literally just a few streets away in Little Tokyo, or a, few, a five minute drive away in LA, um, the local community had raised money to, to fund artists to help them with their process of changing the area and not allowing developers to control the shaping of place. So there's both examples of how artists are both used and can be used with and against local communities. And I think that's quite nice that um, it happens everywhere and it's just to be aware of those stories wherever they happen. Thanks. Um, thanks to everyone. I, I, um, I think we'll call this the, the kind of official end of, of the talk, but of course, as is standard with, with Negroni Talks, um, we'll just end the recording and people are really welcome to um, stick around and continue the chat. Um, and uh, I want to give a special thanks, obviously, to the to the panelists and to to Hugh for the introduction and and to um, Umbra and and Fourth Space and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks to everyone for putting this together and and everyone for their participation um, and excellent questions um, and engagement. Uh, greatly appreciated. Um, before bank holiday, I'm sure everyone is um, ready for that. Um, and uh, yes, so um, we'll end here, but not, but not really. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.